From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. I'm here with my former colleague and good friend, Mike Green, Dr. Mike Green, Senior Vice President for Asia and Japan Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, and Chair in Modern Contemporary Japanese Politics and Foreign Policy at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Uh, I had the honor of uh, serving with Mike in the uh, National Security Council. Uh, he was otherwise known as uh, Senor Verde, uh, which is a nickname from <laughs> President Bush, if I can say, um, during the administration of George W. Bush, uh, where Mike Green uh, started as the uh, for, as director for Asian Affairs and was then uh, elevated and promoted to be special assistant to the president and senior director for Asia. This week, I'm delighted to speak to Mike about President Obama's recent visit to Asia and his administration's broader legacy uh, in the region. Mike, thank you for joining our podcast. Thank you. At some point, we're going to get you out to China and participate Absolutely. in our Distinguished Speaker Program. Um, let's start out with uh, President Obama's um, recent trip to Asia. He just returned from Asia. This was his 11th trip to Asia, his final trip to Asia in his administration. He went to attend the G20, which uh, was held in Hangzhou, China, uh, and then from there went to Laos, where he participated in the U.S. ASEAN Summit and the East Asia Summit in Vientiane. Um, this is the first U.S. president to visit Laos. Um, beyond that, Mike, I want to start by asking you what you see as the significance of his visit. What were the president's priorities before, you know, as he uh, took this trip, and do you think uh, were they achieved? Well, um, he, his his goal, I think, um, and in fact, his his aides said his goal was to um, have a capstone or a um, final um, showcase of his so-called pivot or rebalance to Asia. Um, and in some ways, I think he failed to achieve that because politically, uh, the White House lost control of the press narrative. And to be fair to President Obama, that often happens in the last year of an administration. The lame duck has a hard time um, writing its own stories when the press is focused on the next presidential candidates. Um, and there were some unfortunate accidents like the incident on the tarmac in, in China uh, or President Duterte of the Philippines insulting the President of the United States publicly. Yeah. Look, you and I worked in the White House. The, these happened mm -hmm. from time to time to us. Um, but it was particularly bad because it was his last trip and he was um, uh, already sort of an afterthought for the press. Um, I think the policy objectives for the trip were probably achieved mm -hmm. to a significant extent. I think with China... Um, the White House had modest objectives. I think the Chinese side would have preferred a very um, pronounced confirmation of the new model of great power relations. Mm. But it was quite clear to me, talking to people in the administration before they went, that they were not going to reject the new model of great power relations for reasons of face and um, because, in fact, they had um, welcomed it previously, but they were clearly not going to make that the centerpiece of the China stop because that 
concept has lost credibility mm. in the U.S. and would not have um, benefited U.S.-China relations. It would have created a backlash. So they had a very workmanlike approach. Um, and the big um, uh, policy um, events they hoped for, they got, um, principally this climate change agreement. Um, and uh, otherwise, I don't think they had high ambitions for the bilateral investment treaty mm -hmm. a bit. I think they wanted to reinforce the need for no... Um, strategic surprises in the South China Sea um, at a minimum and encourage China to reflect mm -hmm. on the uh, arbitration ruling and move more towards diplomacy. But I don't think the White House expected breakthroughs. And that was no, no right surprises view. from no. now to the end of the administration. That's right. Don't, you know, a transition in the U.S. is the worst mm -hmm. time for a country yeah. to act badly. Yeah. Um, in Southeast Asia, I think the president wanted to um, reaffirm and um, demonstrate that our relationship with Southeast Asia, with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, is at a new level. Um, and the uh, U.S.-ASEAN summit um, sort of captures that. But that didn't get any press play. Mm -hmm. So in terms of U.S. politics and press, it was, it, was, uh, it was probably a failure from their perspective. But in terms of policy outcomes, it's probably about mm -hmm. where they were aiming to uh, hit. You, you know, you mentioned that potentially one of, I mean, one of the reasons, one of the things the president and the administration were trying to do is to highlight the uh, rebalance to Asia, their their principal policy for the Asia-Pacific region over the course of their uh, leadership. Um, TPP, obviously, is an important part of that. The president talked about that on the trip. Looking forward, though, it's hard, at least from my own perspective, to be optimistic about it. And just wondered your perception, perception on the uh, chances that it'll get done in this administration in the lame duck or early in the next administration, and and if not, the impact on the legacy of the uh, of the pivot to Asia that's rebalancing. I think um, it is unlikely that the TPP um, Trans-Pacific Partnership will be ratified in the U.S. Congress in the lame duck. Um, one reason is because um, they're already planning on using the lame duck to pass the federal budget. So there's just not going to be enough mm. time. Enough bandwidth. Enough bandwidth politically, enough time on the calendar yeah. to actually deal with all the legislation that has to go through various committees. That's very hard. Um, uh, secondly, the fact that Hillary Clinton uh, and Donald Trump, the leading candidates, both oppose it, um, means that even after the lame duck, uh, it's going to be hard for members, even members who have lost their seats, um, uh, to uh, to do this. For example, Republicans who may have lost their seat are not going to want to do Hillary Clinton a favor on TPP when she opposed it. Mm. Um, so that politics are not great. And frankly, I think the administration um, made a number of mistakes. The first was not picking up TPP right away in 2009. The administration didn't really start moving on TPP till around 2010-11, because of their own politics internally with labor unions and because mm -hmm. of the president's relative non-interest in trade, at least at that point. Um, and now they've framed it, I think, in the wrong way. The president said, if we don't pass DPP, China will write the rules in Asia. Right. I don't think China's going to write the rules in Asia anytime soon. Um, and the problem with pitching it that way is that if he doesn't get it, he's set up a narrative where the region and the American public will think, we lost. So it's almost, unfortunately, it was a desperate gamble that did not work politically um, because... Uh, Meaning the narrative... That the narrative was to sell it Democrats were not going to vote for a bill 
right. based on strategy, right. if they thought it hurt workers. And Republicans already already believed that it's strategic, that the president telling them didn't make a difference. So he set up a narrative now where if we don't get it, it will definitely have. Look like China's. It'll look like a big win for China and a big defeat for the U.S. Um, and what does that do for the legacy of the, of the Asia rebound? Well, I think... Um, Broadly speaking, I would say this about three balance historically, and, and I, I'm a historian. I've written a book on on, on U.S. strategy in Asia since the American Revolution. So, uh, in a historical perspective, I think the first thing that has to be said is there's far more continuity from Bush to Obama than change, and as you would know, there's far more continuity from Clinton to Bush than change. Um, so, so this is not a radical new thing. Um, the President Obama is the first president in history to have a nickname for his Asia policy. The pivot, but but it's not that new. It builds on a lot of what came before. Where I would give him high marks, and I think history will judge him very well, is on Southeast Asia. The U.S. has had a very episodic engagement of Southeast Asia since the Vietnam War. Um, President Obama, in part because he grew up in that region, part because the Chinese made the U.S. more attractive, mm-hmm. um, but in part because he cared, you know, created the U.S. ASEAN summit. Um, uh, join the East Asia Summit. Um, these are institutions that will ensure a more consistent American approach to Southeast Asia. Um, in the larger context of China's rise, it, 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 it follows from what Clinton did with Japan, sure. Bush did with India, and now, you know, building relationships. Mm-hmm. But I think it has its own logic and momentum that will endure mm-hmm. and rebound to the president's credit. Um, I think the president's performance on great power relations was subpar. I think the very rocky relationship with China uh, that the next president will inherit is due to structural factors, the rise of Chinese power. Uh, it's due to Xi Jinping uh, having a very different style and different articulation of Chinese interests. But I think part of it has to be laid on the administration, which never clearly articulated um, the uh, coordinates uh, for their for their for their pivot, so you know it, it it sort of shifted from a promise to respect China's core interests to the rebalance back to the new model of great power relations. And I think that in China, but also in Japan and other major powers, they weren't quite sure where the administration's bottom line was, and that both sides thought that 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 the administration's ultimate disposition mm-hmm. in Asia was up in the air and could be manipulated. And so you had kind of the worst situation where the Japanese, although the administration did make some important trade and security agreements, at, a, at their core are not quite sure where mm-hmm. the U.S. is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the in Chinese... Part because they've shifted. Because they've shifted terms. back yeah. and forth. Yeah. And, where, and the Chinese um, were, I think, surprised by the rebalance. They mm-hmm. shouldn't have been, but they were surprised because they read mm-hmm. too much into the earlier statements about mm-hmm. core interests. So the inability to have a consistent articulation and consensus on what the rebalance meant has hurt great power mm-hmm. relations. Mm-hmm. You know, Republican administrations like ours are the mirror opposite in a way. We do very well on great power relations. What we don't do as well are Southeast Asia, Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it just seems to be the trend. But they've left, I think, U.S.-China relations in a, the roughest shape they've been in at the end of any administration. Mm-hmm. Interesting um, you say the first administration to have a nickname for its Asia policy. You know, I had a similar critique after the rebalance was announced that it was it was it was renowned, announced in a in a in a with a lot of fanfare, right. and uh, it I think put the focus on the question of whether the U.S. could actually achieve it in an era of dwindling resources and problems still going with the Middle East and and with Russia. Um, it it may be I mean if this TPP is not able to be achieved, 
that it is this nickname and that it is this fanfare that they rolled it out in that uh, may be the problem ultimately because the things that are part of the pivot, in my view, most of them were the right things to do. Right. Uh, the question is, could you do it without all the fanfare? One of the issues, obviously, that is front and center in the U.S.-China relationship um, is uh, U.S.-China and uh, the tension over the South China Sea. Uh, in July, the tribunal, uh, unclass tribunal, announced uh, it's reached its decision, uh, which rejected uh, China's expansive claims uh, in the South China Sea. And we've had a period of cooling down, I think, in large part because the president was going to be, because China was going to be hosting the G20. They wanted to get President Obama there. It's a question what will happen going forward. But one of the things that happened at the G20 on the margins was these comments by the new Philippine president, Duterte. And I want to get your uh, reaction to those. And what are the consequences uh, for us, uh, for the region, um, for current developments in the South China Sea of, you know, that apparent um, uh, tension in the relationship between the U.S. and the Philippines? Well, one uh, thing it shows us is that um, as the U.S. tries to uh, manage relations with uh, countries in Asia and tries to shore up relations with countries that are under Chinese pressure, uh, it's not going to be a cakewalk. It's not going to be that easy. There are going to be issues of human rights. There are going to be issues um, of personalities that, um, that that mean that we cannot just have a uh, sort of black and white strategy where you're with us and uh, or you're not. Um, in reality, it's going to take a lot of retail work by the next Secretary of State, President, Secretary of Defense, and not just with the big ones like Japan and Korea and China, but with the Philippines, mm. with Cambodia. We're going to have to invest more mm. in these relationships. Um, the other takeaway I have from Duterte is, uh, as some journalists have uh, put it, uh, he appears to be pro-China and anti-U.S. That's wrong. He's anti-everybody. Right. He's just a, a unpredictable uh, nationalist. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, look, we have one of those two, and they seem to be uh, popping up all over the world in this day and age. But I do not see Duterte as uh, somehow pro-China mm. and anti-U.S., even though the Chinese press and the Japanese press mm. and sometimes the U.S. press is portrayed in that way. His national security team, his, his defense, foreign affairs, uh, national security leadership are uh, very much continuing the same flanking that the previous administration had in Manila. The Philippine people in opinion polls are very pro-U.S. Mm. Mm. Um, the real problem here is not uh, sort of anti-U.S. pro-China or something like that. The real problem is that his um, explicit endorsement of extrajudicial killings right. um, violates a very fundamental mm -hmm. principle of international law uh, and norms and U.S. foreign policy. So how do we negotiate and how do we manage that? That's tricky. tricky very tricky. But I'm on balance, I'm, I'm confident that if we invest the time and if we think about the long-term... Um, and if we keep at this issue, um, but don't let it dominate the relationship, that we, we, we'll, our relationship with the Philippines um, is, is going to be um, productive in the end. And, and China, now that the G20 is over, a um, lot of speculation about what they might do with respect to Scarborough Shoal. Will they announce an air defense identification zone in the South China Sea? Um, you know, will, how do you see this going forward? There's been a bit of a lull. 
but how do you see this going forward through the end of the Obama administration and then perhaps even more importantly at the beginning uh, of the next U.S. administration when you point out that transitions are extremely sensitive? So on the menu of things China might do to consolidate its um, control and really its ability to coerce or compel others to accept its sovereignty claims in the South China Sea, um, the most dangerous would be um, trying to uh, blockade or isolate the um, Philippines on Sierra Madre, which I don't think they'll do. The next most dangerous would be building up Scarborough Shoals as a new airfield. Um, ADIZ is somewhat less dangerous because it's not physical, it's more demonstrative. Um, any of these, including ADIZ, would be contrary to China's geopolitical interests because it will set the next administration in the U.S. on an adversarial relationship from the beginning. Um, it will push Duterte um, firmly in the direction of the U.S. Um, it will um, lead to consolidation of um, military cooperation between the U.S. and Japan and Australia and others. It will have all of these effects that geopolitically and diplomatically are not in China's interests. Militarily, I believe that the PLA um, would like to have an airfield on Scarborough Shoals because it will give them uh, overlapping air coverage for tactical air over the entire nine-dash line. So there's a military attractiveness to making this last move to consolidate their ability to compel smaller states to accept their sovereignty um, and to complicate U.S. planning or Japanese planning in the first island chain. Um, if the, the military logic leads to that kind of move, in spite of the geopolitical setback it would mean for China, that's a very bad sign. Um, I thought... A bad sign internally. In it's a bad sign about how in China. decisions are decisions made strategically are made. in China. Um, I was more pessimistic before the G20. Mm. I, th I thought it was about a 60% chance we would see something on Scarborough, uh, uh, like we've been discussing. Mm -hmm. This is purely impressions, talking to experts, including you. But I think now it's more likely the Chinese will sort of hold... Mm their fire or, 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 or avoid big, visible, dramatic military moves like land reclamation at Scarborough for a while. Mm -hmm. I think they'll compensate by increasing their operational tempo, mm -hmm. sending more ships and more planes to the South China Sea and the East China Sea, which don't make for good photos. I mean, CSIS on our website has been doing um, satellite photos of all these new um, uh, reclaimed islands and bases. You know, sending ships and planes, increasing the operational mm -hmm. tempo, that, that yeah. is harder to sort of right. grab the public imagination. My guess is that that's how they'll continue the pressure on these other states. But like I said, I, 60-40, 40-60, it's, yeah. it's, it's really going to be a critical and, and uh, sensitive era uh, or period. And, um, uh, and we'll learn a lot from how Beijing plays it. You know, my sense, too, is that the next administration, whether that's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, will be under some pressure early on to be tough on China. And uh, moves in that regard, Scarborough Shoal, or other moves as you've discussed, will really put the, put the U.S. administration under pressure to react in very strong ways, which ultimately will not uh, be good for the U.S.-China relationship or the region. Um, what will be high on the next administration's agenda, uh, U.S. administration, I'm sure, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, will be North Korea. We've seen developments recently, the most recent nuclear test two days ago, largest nuclear, it's their fifth nuclear test, the largest one to date. 
they tested three uh, mid-range ballistic missiles last week. They've tested um, uh, a number of missiles over the past year. Um, the, the missiles last week, of course, landed inside Japan's air defense identification zone. Uh, you mentioned recently that North Korea seems to blow through every agreement that we have with them and that no U.S. president has been able to hand this situation over to his or his successor, uh, a better situation on North Korea than they inherited. What, why is that? And how can you, see, can you foresee any near-term changes in how countries in the region approach North Korean nuclear issue uh, in a way that could lead to progress? And how do we address this issue with our partners in the region, that's Korea, Japan, and China? So um, North Korea uh, is on a rapid, accelerated move to consolidate its ability to mount a nuclear weapon on a ballistic missile. Um, until now, the pace has been uh, one in which the North Koreans test a nuclear weapon or a missile or do a provocation. Um, we all threaten them. Uh, it's extremely tense and time-consuming to maintain the diplomatic front, the sanctions, to compel North Korea to back off. They usually don't back off the program, but we get a chance in the six-party talks or some bilateral dialogue to de-escalate the tension, which is taxing on all of us, China, the U.S., Korea, Japan. And in the past has involved some sort And then of we go back and we have some small concessions or some dialogue. And then when the North Koreans are ready, they test again. But under Kim Jong-il, they managed that tempo um, in a way that we got complacent again. Mm-hmm. And then they tested, and then we got complacent again. And, 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 and that's partly why we haven't been successful, because for... For us, for Korea, for China, maintaining the level of pressure on North Korea necessary to actually affect changed behavior involves a lot of risk and a lot of tension that if you're South Korean, you don't want to live with. And if you're Chinese with so many problems domestically and internationally, you don't want to live with. And if you're the U.S. with the Middle East and Syria and everything else, you don't want to live with. So it's been very tempting after provocations to sort of get back into the dialogue and and then get repeat the cycle again and again. Ratchet it up. The problem is it's not cyclical. Every time North Korea does this, its capability gets better. And so now we're at a point where their capability is actually quite threatening. And Kim Jong-un is not doing this kind of um, test, diplomacy test over the course of one or two years. He's doing this in rapid succession. So we we can't pretend, and the Chinese can't pretend, and the Koreans and Japanese can't pretend um, that our old way will work. I think there will be a lot of um, uh, pressure uh, for the U.S., ROK, Japan to really increase defense. I think that is just the beginning. Mm. Um, and I think that a new administration in the U.S. is going to look at much more um, sustained and deliberate ways to cut off the flow of technology and funds to North Korea. Um, and I think they're going to be prepared to do that without China if they have to whether it's missile defense or uh, interdiction. It'd be much more effective to do it with China. Mm-hmm. But you anticipate they'll look to China initially to Everybody see looks to China. if they're willing to work together on right. this. this. But what you're saying is if they're still in the position they are today, then the administration will be much more inclined to do it with South Korea and Japan and, and continue with some of the measures that we've seen, THAAD and, and others. I've been working in North Korea for about 25 years. Every time it gets hard, 
people come in and say, let's get China to help us before we make any really hard decisions. So yes, people will try to get China to help us. But our, um, our latitude to kind of wait for that is much reduced. Yeah. And there's going to be real pressure to take real actions, physical actions now, to increase our defense. That is just one example and absolutely necessary. And to interdict, stop, squeeze the North Korean program now, not as part of a diplomatic process to change their mind, but to slow it down the way we did the Iranians. That's going to create tension with China. It already already has with that. Um, and uh, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable. And um, I think that the next administration here will live with that discomfort. Uh, if, if China doesn't shift its position, no, that's right. I think that it this, will, is, this seems to be a message that the Chinese are receiving as of late, which is this is a much more serious threat. We, the assessment has changed in the United States, this rapid succession right. of tests. And there must be some thinking in China on uh, whether or not they're going to allow this to be a wedge that drives us further apart, or with the next administration, whether they d decide to shift their approach. Our former boss, President Bush, thought that if we could involve China, that this ultimately would be better for us, for our relationship with China, and for the region. I think, I'm not sure where the Chinese will be on January 20th. I don't know. Yeah. My, I'll tell you what I think we should strive for, though. And I think we should be um, prepared for some tension in relations with China as we deal with this problem. Um, look, North Korea exports mushrooms, methamphetamines, and tension. And we're not going to be able to deal with them without some tension, including in relations with China. It, 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 we shouldn't be afraid of that. It's unfortunate. We shouldn't be afraid of it. I think we need to focus on working with China for much more effective um, implementation of sanctions and uh, interdiction of North Korean um, technologies and materials in and in some cases out of North Korea. Much, much more deliberate um, uh, joint effort. It would it would have a huge impact on American thinking about China's um, willingness to help us, uh, and a lot of it can be not public. Um, secondly, I'm very skeptical. In fact, I'm 99.9% skeptical that diplomacy is going to convince Kim Jong Un to change course. But I do think we've probably gotten too worked up about dialogue, and I think we need to think about a way to have dialogue. Don't dramatize it. Just meet and collect intelligence and talk. I think the Chinese will clear that. as to what we can achieve through the dialogue. Don't have expectations. Yeah, have very low expectations. Mm -hmm. But don't don't over uh, invest dialogue with either the hope it will lead to a breakthrough or the fear that somehow we'll be tricked. Just yeah. low expectations, but let's just routinize it a bit. Interesting. And I think the Chinese will appreciate that. Interesting. And frankly, I think the Koreans and Japanese will too. I'm not a believer that this will get. North Korea to change its mind, but we know very little about this regime. And so I think almost as an intelligence effort, I think we need to sort of make it a bit of a commodity. It's just what we do. Um, uh, and then the third thing is um, we, um, uh, we need to just stand firm on THAAD, and I think the Koreans will. And um, we're going to do more missile defense, and um, we're going to have to protect ourselves. And we're going to have to restore or reinforce credibility of our nuclear umbrella, our extended deterrent. And we're just going to have to do it. And we need a dialogue with China where we make it clear we're, we're not going to gratuitously or deliberately try to provoke China. But there are some basic things we have to do for our defense and our allies that we're just going to do. And that's not an easy or comfortable set of 
policies. But I think that's basically where we are and what we have to do. Well, Mike, I'm cognizant of your time, and uh, we've got a lot more to talk about. Perhaps we can get you to China to visit the Carnegie Tsinghua Center to continue some of these discussions. Thank you very much for joining the podcast today. It's great to see you. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next time.